Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. Hi, and um, welcome to Mission Dharma again. Um, our guest speaker this evening is Anushka Fernanda Pule. Um, Anushka is a lifelong spiritual practitioner who has trained in the Theravada tradition for 20 years in the United States, in India, and in Sri Lanka. She has been formally teaching since 2006, and she lives in the mission. Um, she is a member of the Spirit Rock Meditation Center Teachers Council, the um, teaching team for San Francisco Insight Meditation Community, the Leadership Sangha, uh, the East Bay Meditation Center, and she is the main teacher for um, the San Francisco LGBTQ Sangha. So um, we just wholeheartedly welcome Anushka this evening and her teaching to Mission Dharma. So I'm, going to, I'm going to try the mic stand so I don't have to hold this all the time. So I, I can't remember the last time I was here. I feel like it was maybe a year ago and actually around this same time of year. And Because I remember talking about the Day of the Dead and the thin veil between the living and the dead and all kinds of spooky things, right? Um, but today I thought I'd talk about something different than that kind of thing. So I was recently teaching a retreat um, up at Spirit Rock, a 10-day retreat, and at the end, one of the people asked, is there anything that's outside of the Dharma? Have you found anything in your life that's outside of the realm of practice? And there was a lot of teachers, and we all kind of looked at each other, and uh, basically, no, (laughs) So I know some of you are on a 100-day retreat in your life now, and you might be finding this as you try and bring dharma and bring practice more and more into your life, that um, there's more and more touch points. And as you connect more and more, oftentimes the first thing that you start to notice is actually how not awake you are, which seems like bad news, but actually... It's good news to notice that because you were also not awake before. You just weren't aware that you were not awake. (laughs) So uh, it feels like bad news, but it's actually good news. And this has been my experience, too, as I've um, done practice. I started uh, like over 20 years ago and uh, started doing retreats and then did a lot of practice in daily life also, as you all are doing here in urban settings, and I remember at first I had some kind of di- dichotomy between like my meditation practice and then my life. And I think when I first went on a retreat, I came back from the retreat, and uh, I suddenly tried to make my life as if it was like the retreat or retreat center. And I was living in a college dorm then, so uh, 
it was a little bit difficult to script everyone into that uh, scenario. And um, uh, in retrospect, I feel like my roommates were actually very kind and patient with me as I went through this uh, process. But now I feel more like it's adaptable and uh, the Dhamma is able to uh, be a lens through which I can see all different aspects of my life. And it's actually kind of fun to apply this in all these different ways to uh, everything. So eating and riding public transportation and relationships and work and uh, health and all manner of things can be seen through the lens of the Dharma, the teachings. So one aspect that I thought I would uh, talk about some today uh, is about politics, so dharma and politics. So what's the connection, uh, if any? So I moved to San Francisco about um, 12 years ago, and uh, how many people here moved to San Francisco from somewhere else as opposed to being born here, right? Many people. So many of us have chosen to move here probably, or maybe sometimes some people came for a job or followed a partner, and uh, I love San Francisco. You know, I'm very deeply in love with the city, uh, and I remember this uh, all the time, different things that I see about the city that I really love. So, for example, on Sunday I went for a bike ride through um, Golden Gate Park, which is one of my favorite city activities, and you know, there were the buffalo, and then there's the lake where people do like toy motorboats and then there's the rollerblading arena um, where this Sunday people were all dressed in Halloween costumes and doing a reenactment of um, Michael Jackson's thriller uh, so it's just all these great wacky San Francisco things you know that uh, we wouldn't expect and Because of that, also, I'm uh, somewhat uh, engaged in the life of the city, including the politics. So many of you uh, are probably aware, if you ever get your mail, that it's election season, right? And we have uh, elections coming up for the mayor, for the district attorney, uh, for uh, the sheriff, Right? So I'm not going to sit here and tell you who to vote for, so don't worry about that. Um, but I do feel like it's part of our engagement in the world to actually pay attention to these, even the lesser, you know, lesser races like sheriff or, you know, the multitude of propositions that we get barraged with here in California, you know. Uh, and actually as part of our engagement in the world, as part of our awareness to attend to that and to actually try to make decisions based on our values, So in the time of the um, Buddha, he was a monk, was a renunciate, as were his uh, monastic followers. But he also had a lot of lay followers, including uh, people who were uh, kings, which is probably the closest you could come to a sort of politician at that time. And they would come to him and ask him different questions, and uh, he would give them some advice about this and that. Now, basically, the monks and nuns kind of stayed out of politics, and this was among the topics that they were suggested not to talk about, right? was politics and kings and royalty and gossip and all of this kind of thing. 
But it's good to consider, I think, when you when you look at who you want to vote for. Like, what is it that this person is representing? What do I feel like the values of this person are? Do I feel like their uh, ethics are in line with what I feel like are appropriate ethics in terms of how they would carry things out uh, in the world? So being um, somewhat of a political uh, follower here, I actually went to debates for the mayor's race. and uh, uh, Actually, I think I went to debates for all of them. And, you know, there are a lot of mayoral candidates, as you probably know, right? And I remember at one of the debates, um, someone asked the candidates, uh, so what do you think is the biggest, uh, most unforgivable ethical uh, breach that a politician could make or that you could make as mayor? And it was very interesting because all of them named different uh, different breaches. Like, basically, they lined up all of the precepts there, you know, and discussed them. Mostly, of course, pointing fingers at other candidates in that, <laughs> in their answers. But um, it made me reflect also that uh, you know, there, there's not a tremendously high standard that we have for politicians, right? Uh, unfortunately, so it's also not like you can expect people to be perfect, you know, in the choices that you have. And yet, also, I think we can try to to uh, do the best that we can to try and create the kind of society that we would like to have. So relatedly, uh, I'm sure you're all aware of this whole uh, movement, the Occupy Wall Street movement, Occupy uh, fill-in-the-blank city movements that are happening. And I might have different feelings about that uh, and the politics behind that. I feel like it actually is a very uh, positive uh, phenomenon, and I'm very happy about seeing that. And one of the critiques of the the movements there has been, you know, what's the message that people are trying to say in that? Like, it's not clear, or there's not one charismatic leader to look to. And kind of the way that I have been um, relating to that is that it seems like it's it's actually the society as a whole in some way rising up uh, and stating the first noble truth. So the first noble truth is that there is uh, dukkha. So there is difficulty, strain, stress, unsatisfactoriness in life. And in this case, in our society, in the way that things have played out economically, in the way that things have played out in terms of um, social justice. So the, you know, the, the first noble truth is just like, that's true. There is unsatisfactoriness. There is dissatisfactoriness. Uh, there is strain. There is stress. And on a personal level, when we consider this, it seems both incredibly obvious, but also actually somewhat relieving to know, like, oh, I'm not the only one who feels this. Like, if my life is not perfect, it's not because it's all my fault and I've messed up things. So then there's, there is a second noble truth and third noble truth and fourth noble truth, which are, is good, which includes what's the cause of that dukkha, craving, tanha, right? this leaning that we have. 
that there's a possibility of ending that. And then the Eightfold Path, which you're practicing, is the prescription for uh, relief from that. So I feel like in this kind of movement, this Occupy Wall Street, Occupy Blank movement is the statement of there is dissatisfaction. But perhaps the second, the third, the fourth haven't really come yet. But uh, to me, just even stating the first uh, is good, is helpful. So since you're practicing in this 100-day retreat for yourself, you could also you know, bring that home uh, to yourself for those of you who are, and even those of you who aren't. So what does this mean to occupy something? Right? And to what extent are you actually able to, before you occupy Wall Street, or even while you're occupying Wall Street, or Grant Ogawa Plaza, or Embarcadero, how much do you know how to occupy yourself? So what does that mean to occupy yourself? So sometimes I think in the, uh, but the term occupy is like in the bathroom, you know, in like buses and trains and stuff, there's like a little slider. And when you go into the bathroom, you click it and it says occupied. And then when you leave it, it says vacant, right? (laughs) And um, so think about that for yourself, right? Um, Is like, okay, how much am I here present, Right occupied and how much am I vacant like when, when am I not present with myself right? um, and we'll take some questions and discussions in a little bit so I'll just say some things and then we'll come back yeah. so just to consider that for yourself like how much am I here present in my life and how much am I not am I gone empty right? and not empty in the positive sense of emptiness but just like spaced out not present not here Or occupying the moment. So how much am I able to actually occupy each moment? Be present here with the moment. And when am I not? It's it's helpful to notice, are there particular kinds of moments? Are there particular circumstances in which it's harder for me to be here? Now, the word occupy has many different connotations, and some of them are very negative connotations, right? Around, like, occupied territory or, like, taking over something. But in this sense, I'm talking about it as in to inhabit, like, to completely inhabit your life. To completely inhabit with presence the experience of your mind and body system as you move through your life, as you move through the world. So I don't remember if I did this little um, demonstration last time I was here. But, you know, when we practice mindfulness, it's at first is allowing us to see all of the different dimensions of what's really here in our life, in what we call our life. And, you know, the Buddha explained that what we call our life is actually an aggregate of six different sense experiences that arise and pass away. So what we looks like the solidity of our life and ourself is actually a sequence of the five senses that you probably know. So seeing, smelling, tasting, hearing, touching. And then the sixth sense is the mind, and then the objects that arise in the mind. 
So just as the eye sees sights and the nose senses smells, the ear receives sounds, the mind receives thoughts, images. And then we call some of them memories, we call some of them plans. But they're all just actually objects that meet with consciousness in that field. So in uh, our usual life, let's say this piece of paper here is the entirety of your mind body experience. So all the stuff that comes through your uh, system. So thoughts, feelings, sounds, smells, etc. And for most of us, through conditioning and just through, you know, you could even say maybe our innate tendencies, there's some that are okay for us to be with and some that are difficult for us to be with. So supposing this is all the stuff that comes through and sometimes you get, for example, physical discomfort also known as pain. So you say, oh, I don't really like pain, so I'm going to try and push that away. Right? So if pain arises in my system, I can't be present with that. I have to look away, I have to blink, right? I have to kind of put on the blinders for that. Right? And then something else comes through, like sadness. So here, I'll hold it up because I know it's small from the back, right? <laughs> sadness. Well, I don't like sadness. Maybe if you're a guy, it's like, oh, I've been told I shouldn't be sad. I must be strong to be a man, not be sad. So push that away, right? Or like, oh, jealousy. Like, I don't, I don't want to be a jealous person. So, okay. Then when jealousy comes through, we have to push that away, right? And then certain memories we don't like to think about. So those come through to push that away, right? And so on and so forth, right? Maybe even certain tastes. Don't like broccoli, push that away, right? So on, right? So then basically you get to live in this tiny, little, crushed up, odd pentagon, uh, right? So that's the experience that you can be with. And everything else as it arises, you basically spend a lot of time shuttering your eyes, you know, uh, putting the blinders on, avoiding, right? Dodging in some way or another. Now in actuality, all those things are still happening, and many of those things are actually still driving us, Right? So jealousy arises, and we pretend it's not there because I am not a jealous person. I am over that relationship, whatever your story is, right? But meanwhile, you're doing something sort of unbeknownst to you, passive-aggressive in this way, right? Or sadness has arisen. You don't want to see sadness. It's difficult to be with. So you're pretending it's not there, pushing it away. Meanwhile, you're eating a whole chocolate cake, right? <laughs> don't know why that's happening, right, et cetera, so... So first thing with mindfulness is that we start to open to try to be present with all of this. So this is why when I was um, giving the instructions, I dropped something in about uh, notice the quality of mindfulness. So the kind of mindfulness that we like to bring is really, uh, you know, I like the word heartfulness a lot too, even better sometimes, because it's this quality of openness, of kindness, uh, of allowing, of being non-judgmental. So being able to be with any experience, so including broccoli and jealousy and pain and all of this, right? So as we learn to do that, then we can actually get our whole life back. You know, we actually get to be alive in a different way. You know, we get the whole entirety of what's coming through the mind-body system. Now that's step one, though. So it's not just about, you know, oh, I can experience everything, but... As you get to pay attention to everything, then you can see how what we call our life and what we call our self gets constructed. So how 
when an experience happens, so for example, a painful experience happens, there's the experience itself which arises and passes away in this experience of the six sense doors, as I mentioned. But even after it's gone, many times our mind is actually making it more than what it is. So the stories from our mind are actually creating a much larger uh, event that kind of lets it drag on. So the Buddha talked about this as shooting the second arrow. So as if you're shot by one arrow, but then we create more suffering by shooting ourselves with a second arrow, and then the third arrow, and the fourth arrow. So for example, if you're sitting there and there's a small twinge in your knee, so that twinge is just a little shoot of something, cold, vibration, it could be unpleasant, certainly, commonly known as pain, right? But it's there and it's gone. But then meanwhile, we notice that. It's like, oh no, my knee hurts. Oh no, it's probably my old injury from soccer. Oh, it's probably going to hurt for the rest of the time. Oh no, I should probably stop meditating or maybe I need to start sitting in a chair, right? right. I wonder if I should go to the doctor again about that, right? My apartment, it will be bad for if I have to have an operation because now there's a lot of stairs, right? And on and on and on and on, right? So meanwhile, that actual experience that happened in the knee just happened for one second. But the story, the creation, the um, proliferation of mind has made a giant story of it and scared us and made a, a, a big drama that is all our own creation. So the mind can create thoughts, but the thoughts can be seen if we're able to be present with them as just an arising and a passing away. So just that. And, and this is incredibly freeing, we don't actually have to believe all of them, right? Like any more than we have to believe like everything that comes through on your Twitter feed <laughs> or your Facebook feed or something like that, right? <laughs> like it's just a stream of words. and <laughs> Some of them are helpful and useful and it's good to pay attention. And some of them are not. So in this way, learning how to... Uh, be present with ourselves in an increasing way. So physically, mentally, emotionally, in every which way. Allows us to be more alive. Allows us to enjoy the things that are pleasant much more. Allows us to know the things that are painful just as they are without creating more out of them. And then also allows us to see the building blocks of how suffering is created. How this sense of self gets created, which drives us. So what's true, what's not true. So I feel that part of this, um, you know, this movement of this, you know, occupy, etc., is like about seeing something that has been true for a while, but that the uh, has not been recognized. So, uh, you know, apparently the distribution of wealth now is more unequal than since 1928, right? And that's been over the last 20 years. That's been growing. And um, for those of you who have any um, economic uh, background. There's something called the Guinea coefficient, which measures the disparity of wealth in a country, in a society. And the U.S. is now uh, sandwiched somewhere between Mexico and Sri Lanka in the disparity of wealth. So like the percentage that the richest owns compared to the percentage that the poorest owns. Which shocked me when I found this out because like my family is actually from Sri Lanka and I go there and it's appalling. Like it's it's very obvious how the disparity of wealth is there, 
And it's actually just about the same here now, too. So in some ways, it's like we're waking from the dream of this idea that uh, everything is, is equal or true or that the, uh, the story of the American dream has worked. You know? Now, all of this is also not to say, like, oh, and that means we hate people in Wall Street or we hate rich people and so on, right? Uh, because it actually is that these systems have, have come together for different causes and conditions and created this. And uh, I know also people who are wealthy and who have also feel somewhat sort of like, oh, I've been born into this circumstance, right? Here it is. Right? Or even people who have uh, encountered wealth on their way in this life and who feel like, oh, yeah, I just happened to get into this startup company at a certain time and then, you know, here I am in this... One percent, right? But there are certain things that are keeping it that way, and certain things that that do seem to be uh, not allowing people to live decent lives, uh, which is, to me, of concern for all of us as a compassionate society. So what's helpful in helping us to uh, remember to be present? So one thing is actually, ironically, a remembrance of death. So what helps us to be alive? Remembering that we're going to die. So in the the Buddhist teaching, there's a lot of encouragement to actually reflect on this. Reflect on the fact that you are going to die. Reflect on the fact that old age, sickness, death are inevitable for us, that we cannot escape those. So in closing, I'll just share a little story with you from the time of the Buddha and his uh, conversation with a king. And I'm going to paraphrase this to um, make it shorter and hopefully more interesting to you a little bit. So uh, this is with King Pasanedi. So he approached Buddha in the middle of the day And he arrived, he bowed to one side, and then the Buddha asked him, Well now, great king, where are you coming from in the middle of the day? And he said, Just now I was engaged in the sort of royal affairs typical of noble warrior kings, intoxicated with the intoxication of sovereignty, obsessed by greed for sensual pleasures, who have attained stable control in their country, and who rule having conquered a great sphere of territory on earth. So it, it kind of sounds like somebody edited that, like he didn't actually say that, but, you know, <laughs> maybe he did. So the Buddha says, um, so what do you think, great king? Supposing a man, trustworthy and reliable, were to come to you from the east, and an arrival would say, there I saw a great mountain as high as the clouds coming this way, crushing all living beings in its path. You should do whatever you should do. Then a second person came to him and said, There's a great mountain coming from the west, as high as the clouds, crushing all living beings in its path. And a third person came and said, from the north, there's a great mountain coming, crushing all living beings in its path. And a fourth came and said, from the south, similarly. So if, great king, such a great peril should arise, such a terrible destruction of life, what should be done? And the king says, well, if such a great peril should arise, if such a terrible destruction of human life, then knowing this human state is so hard to obtain, what else should be done but 
trying to live a good life, right conduct, skillful deeds, meritorious action. The king perhaps didn't have a meditation practice, or he might have answered that too. So then the Buddha says, I inform you now, great king, I announce to you, great king, aging and death are rolling in on you. When aging and death are rolling in on you, great king, what should be done? And then he says, oh, as aging and death are rolling in on me, what should be done is dhamma conduct, right conduct, skillful deeds, meritorious actions. And then he says, there are, there are elephant battles fought by noble warrior kings, intoxicated by sovereignty, obsessed by greed for sensual pleasures. But there's no use for these elephant battles, no scope for them when aging and death are rolling in. There's no use for infantry battles. There's no use for battles of wits. There's abundant gold stored in my vaults. And we can buy off enemies, but it cannot buy off aging and death. So all that can be done is dhamma conduct, right conduct, skillful deeds, and meritorious action. And the Buddha applauds his answer and says, like massive boulders, mountains pressing against the sky, moving in from all sides, so aging and death come rolling over all living beings. That includes you, me. Noble warriors, priests, merchants, workers, outcasts, and scavengers. So we could, in the modern era, include uh, muni drivers, IT workers, uh, plumbers, doctors, politicians, dhamma teachers. They spare nothing. They trample everything. Here, elephant troops can hold no ground, nor can chariots or infantry, nor can a battle of wits or wealth win out. So a wise person, seeing their own good, steadfast, secures their confidence in the practice. One who practices the Dhamma in thought, word, and deed receives praise here on earth and after death. So I offer those reflections for you this evening. Thank you for your attention. And we'll have a little time if uh, people have any questions, comments, you'd like to make. Six. Yeah. So the question is, um, when was, is zoning out a helpful thing to do? What's your experience about that? I don't know if it's helpful, but I do it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so saying, I don't know if it's helpful, but I do it a lot. So it's good that you noticed that, right? And, and what does zoning out look like or feel like for you? Like, what is zoning out? So it's not meditation, don't know where the time has gone, uh, not sleeping, but not being present, I guess, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a good thing to look into in, uh, your, in your life about 
zoning out. And um, so it sounds like this is not an active zoning out. Like you're not doing something particular, like playing solitaire or something like that. Or you know, it's just yeah. Uh, and to notice, like basically just to get interested in that state, and also even to compare that to other states, like um, sleeping and waking, right, or daydreaming. Or even the state that you're in when you take a shower, you know, like sometimes that's sort of a in-between state, right, of not being present, but, you know. Uh, and notice what happens in those states, too. Like, notice what that's like. Now, sometimes I think um, meditation actually could be very restful uh, and uh, oftentimes I feel like um, we might be putting in like too much technical effort into it in some ways. So one of the things that's helpful in noticing in the zoning out or even as you're about to fall asleep is like what it feels like to be incredibly relaxed. You know, what it feels like to be completely relaxed and at ease. Sometimes doing lying down meditation is helpful for noticing that, like what it feels like to be really like uh, allowing, so allowing things to arise. So sometimes when you learn a meditation technique, like stay with the breath or something like that, then it feels like, oh, I'm doing something, and then I have to do it right, and then I have to try, and then, you know, like there becomes like this sense of doing about it that uh, is a little counter to the whole thing. Right? And it's hard because you do have to, you know, it, it doesn't happen naturally that you bring your breath back and your attention back to the breath. So you are training your attention in this beginning part, but then um, there's something about knowing, like what it feels like in that zoning out, like what what's the benefit of it for you? You know, like being able to notice that and notice also if there's a sense of relaxedness and then see like, well, why don't I have that in the rest of my life? You know, like, is it possible to actually blend that sense of the relaxedness, the ease of zoning out with actually being like present? So it's kind of something to play with there. Like, is it possible to have both or are they like matter and antimatter and they will, you know, destroy each other, right? (laughs) Like, what is that there, you know? Uh, but essentially, I think it's good to question all these things because even like um, I was reading something recently about playing video games, right? Which many people have judgment about playing video games is like bad and it's an escape and so on. And this um, uh, video game maker, obviously, they're like more for video games, was saying like, oh, actually, you're developing, you could be developing like interesting skills and qualities during playing video games and. Uh, that it's important to actually create video games that help to cultivate these things. So I was talking to some of my fellow teachers about making a Dharma video game, you know, like some kind of, like a spiritual warrior kind of video game, you know, that helps people to move along the path like that. So, yeah.
Yeah. No, this is a great question. So she's asking about anger, right? So how to be with it and uh, not feed it more, but also not to suppress it. Yeah. So that actually, right there is the, the middle way, right? So the middle way of the Buddha's teaching is not to suppress our emotions, so not to fold up that piece of paper and crush them away, but also not to identify with them and then fuel it, which the fueling is usually with the sense of self that arises, like self-righteousness, like I'm right and that person's wrong, like they shouldn't be sitting up there saying those things, or, you know, on and on like that, right? Or sometimes with some sense of sadness, we could fuel it with self-pity, like, I'm so sad, and my life is so bad, and no one else's life is as bad as mine, and on and on, right? Down the tubes like that, right? Um, so this middle way is actually just to see it as it is, just to see things exactly as it is, to be able to see the thoughts that are there, to be able to see the emotional energy as it arises in the body, and to be with that energy just as it is. And it totally takes practice to do that. It's very difficult to do in the beginning, right? Or even in the middle, <laughs> or in the end, Yes. Like, even that you described it, though, suggests to me that actually you do know, you know. And, I mean, basically, like, we have to be very patient with ourselves, I think. And um, wherever you notice it is wisdom arising. So even after the fact of the whole thing happening, of, like, getting mad and putting your hand up and all that stuff, after that, like, you realize it and you're like, oh, yeah, that happened. That's mindfulness, even if it's like, okay, knowing that with, like, oh, that just happened, right? So you have this sense of that in the moment. So then it's like, okay, take that learn from it, and then, you know, do your best with it. So I'll close with this one little story that I think I've... I, I can't remember if I've told this story before. So when I was in Sri Lanka, there was um, a time when I was learning to ride the buses, and I didn't know the language so well to read, right? Uh, and it's written in different characters there. And in the beginning, the buses would come by, and I was reading very slowly, so kind of like a second grader. And, you know, I'd try and read which destination it was going to, and it'd be like, ka la, zoom, you know, the bus would be gone, right? And then, you know, it'd be like, nu, wa, boom, you know, it'd be gone. And then after a while, I would just try and guess what the first letter, if it was right, and flag the bus. You had to flag the bus to stop it, right, in the middle of the road, and then get on. And then sometimes when I was on the bus, then I'd read, and I'd be like, oh, the wrong bus, I have to get down again, right? But as I got got to learn the language better and reading better, then um, I got to know, like, okay, I could read it from further away quicker, and then I could be like, okay, this is my bus I want, um, this bus I don't want, and then I could get on the right bus, right? So it's like this with our emotions, our intentions, is that, like, we learn to read them. And in the beginning, it's very difficult to read them. It's like the way that I was reading the letters. Like, we don't know it until it's completely gone by, right? Or until it's, like, consumed us and we've already been taken down the road some ways. And we're like, oh, yeah, that's I got on the anger bus. Oh, no, I didn't want that bus, right? <laughs> like, get off. Wherever you get off, right, is good. And then, you know, but then slowly we start to learn sooner and sooner to tell. Like, when the, we first see the bus on the horizon. So when we first sense this energy of this rage or, or uh, you know, fear or jealousy in our body, like, oh, okay, this is what this is. And then it can be like, oh, yeah, that's not the bus that I want. You know, I don't want to get on that, that bus or train or boat or muni or whatever, right? I don't want to get on that one. 
So then it's like, oh, the compassion one, that's a good bus to get on. Okay, I'll get on that one. Right? The kindness bus, okay, I'll get on that one. The generosity bus, right? So that's sort of the second part of it, you know, becoming mindful is to know these, to know how to read it, and to read them sooner and sooner. And it really is just practice, like kind of learning how to read, you know, of learning to read the energy of the mind and body system. And the main thing is also just being present, right? So actually just being here in, to know even there's a bus coming, so I think in the process of this also, it sometimes feels like, oh, it seems like I knew this, but then I got on the bus already anyway, right? So how did that happen? So in, um, you know, one analogy is sort of like you have a wisdom eye, you could say, that's like open and then it's closed. So it's kind of like it's blinking, right? So sometimes it's like, oh, anger bus, don't want to get on that, but then it closes. And then whenever the wisdom eye is closed, we're just playing out our habitual conditioning. And habitual conditioning is like, I'm mad, I'm going to punch this person or you know, whatever, I'm sad, I'm going to eat this chocolate cake, or like whatever, right? It just plays out. So then wisdom eyes open, we're like, oh, the jealousy bus, not getting on that. It blinks shut, and then we step on the bus. And then it opens up again, and we're like, whoa, the jealousy bus. Like, oh, no, I've been stalking my ex. It's, what, how did that happen, right? It's like, And then we feel ashamed and sorry. But it's just like, have a lot of compassion for yourself. You know, it's just like, oh, that's what happened. This is like... Wisdom delusion, wisdom delusion, wisdom delusion. <laughs> you know, it's like, and, and until the, you know the wisdom eye is completely open, like it's there to you know, that's kind of the story. So, just whenever it is that you wake up and you notice that, then it's good. Like rejoice in that, <laughs> the opening of the wisdom eye in that moment. You know, learn what you can from it. Also, like, oh, what were the signs? Like, what was? Oh, the anger bus. It's blue. It has these stripes on it. You know, so like that, you feel the energy. Like, oh, this is what it's like. So then I can see that sooner and sooner, and then. You know, notice also the conditions that make it easier or harder for you to notice that too. Like, oh, when it's foggy, it's harder to, to read the bus, or when it's raining, or, you know, when I'm hungry, or when I'm tired, or, you know, any of that stuff. So, all right, so I'll leave you with that, uh, the bus analogy there, and uh, we're at time. So, so thank you for your attention this evening. So, closing things here. Hello. I want to mention a <laughs> um, quick word about Donna. If you don't know about it yet, it's the practice of generosity. And um, we've been practicing it in a long tradition for about 2,500 years or since the time of the Buddha. And it recognizes the interconnectedness between those who give the teachings and the people that receive it. And there's a Donna basket that's right there. It helps to pay for our rent and tea and things like that. Um, and we really appreciate any donations. You can leave just cash or a check payable to St. John the Evangelist Church. Um, we really appreciate it a lot. And thank you so much for coming. So thank you, everyone. Be well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.